0: of the English language has always been delivered online via computer. Um, It was um, considered, you know, substandard to do it that way for many years, but now it's the only way to do it. And Duolingo has now all of a sudden gotten 500 new companies and universities to accept them in the last month. Their test taking has gone up 10x in the last month, and all of a sudden their competitors are now offering an online-only version as well. it's just an example of how, you know, a market is hard to penetrate for for a very long time because of the existing market dynamics. And then something shifts, even possibly temporarily, and the market opens up. And and I think that's happening, uh, not just for Duolingo and their their test, it's also happening with Duolingo's core product. Lots more people are learning a language on Duolingo today than ever before. And it's happening across the entire spectrum of online education um, as we as we see it through our portfolio of companies so uh it's a it's a tough time you know a lot of bad things happening for people but in online education um it is it is you know i think having a moment
1: and innovation is uh one of the key ways out of this whether you're talking about in the medical field or just being able to, to be productive, to learn stuff, to prepare to come out of this. Um, let's talk about Etsy, too, because a lot of people are, are going on to Etsy, buying masks, as as well as other things. What are you seeing from your position as chairman of Etsy? Things that have worked well, things that haven't worked well as far as navigating this this crisis, um, putting teams together virtually to solve new problems, uh, even even doing governance uh, remotely?
0: Well, so what's interesting about Etsy and other marketplaces versus a traditional e-commerce business is that you have basically a decentralized and distributed supply chain. So in the case of masks, a really interesting story, Um, there were maybe several hundred sellers on Etsy who were making fabric masks a month and a half ago. Um, And then gradually, Etsy started seeing lots of people come into Etsy looking for fabric masks as places like Czechoslovakia and, and other, the Czech Republic and other parts of the world were really starting to say, hey, fabric masks are a piece of protecting ourselves. They started seeing the demand rise and those sellers started selling out. And so Etsy went uh, and just put a call out to all of their sellers who make anything that's sewn, any sort of um, clothing item or, or anything and said, hey, if you can sew, please make masks. And they put up a bunch of, you know, um, Patterns and things like that that these people could use to make them, and they over the course of a, a very short period of time got up to tens of thousands of sellers making masks. And what's great about that is that um, one seller might sell out of masks, but twenty thousand sellers are not going to sell out of masks, right? Mm-hmm. So, and they're all making them, you know, in their own home or in their own little studio or or whatever, and so it's it's a massively decentralized kind of uh, supply chain for masks. And, you know, uh, that's allowed them to become very quickly, you know, a a scaled provider of fabric masks. And by the way, these sellers are, you know, used to making fashionable items. and, And so each and every one looks a little different. And if you want one that, you know, is blue or you want one that's red, or if you want one that's got, you know, something for your kids on it or whatever, you can find that. And so, you know, I think it's just a great story about how um, a marketplace business can respond to a moment um, when people really need something. And it's not like, you know, what, what I mean, we all experienced a situation where all of a sudden we couldn't get toilet paper anymore. Like, why is that? Well, because, you know, maybe there's three or four providers of toilet paper. I don't know. There's probably more than that, but They all kind of go through kind of a set of distribution channels into, you know, chain stores. And, you know, that that supply chain basically just got kind of taken up very quickly when we all had to start staying at home. And now it's caught up now. But, you know, that was that was a difficult time. Um, And, you know, if you have a decentralized kind of supply chain like Etsy has, it can respond more nimbly to something like that.
1: Is that an invisible armrest you got there? It seems like your arm is resting on something, but. Uh...
0: Yeah, what you don't see, this is, so, so what this is, is this is my, uh, I have a Zoom room at, at my office at Union Square Ventures. And so this is my little Zoom room. I go in there and I sit on that couch and I, and I Zoom with people. Um, and I happen to have a picture of it on my phone, um, just randomly, and I made it my background in Zoom. So I'm actually not there. I'm actually sitting on a different couch somewhere, and when I put my hands on the couch, my arms disappear. <laughs> I
1: figured that's what it was. I just uh, in case anybody was weirded out by that, I wanted to call it out. I, I'm gonna to I'm gonna do what I said I was going to do, do a little rule breaking here and, and drop in because I think there are a lot of people who are wondering about fundraising. Uh, you know capital, cash flow uh, is so important during this period. Um, and for you guys are gonna have to forgive me if I butcher any names when I butcher uh, some names, but, but please know that I mean the best. Um, Karen Sholkoff asks, how should founders be thinking about fundraising in such a volatile market and impending recession? I mean, really, we're already in one and uh, at a time of unknowns like this, Fred.
0: Well, so a, a couple of things um, I would say. So uh, there's not one answer to this question. Um, Because it depends upon whether you're just getting started and you're looking to get a seed round done or you're along the way and you've got a company and you've got employees and you've got revenue and you want to access the venture capital market, maybe even, you know, the growth side of the venture capital market. And so where you are and what kinds of investors you want to talk to will change how I answer that question. And and the the other thing I think is super important is how badly you need to raise money, right? Um, Do you need money to get through the next 60, 90 days? Um, In which case you have no choice, you have to be raising money. Um, Or would you like to be raising money now, but you actually have money till the end of the year? And whether or not, could you wait three months and start having conversations in three months? So you know, it, it really depends on the answers to all of those questions. I don't think it's an ideal time to go out and raise money right now because we're all distracted. Whether or not we're distracted in our business lives, we're certainly all somewhat distracted in our personal lives. Whether you've got kids at home and you've got a, you know, caring for them at the same time you're trying to do your job or just, you know, you're distracted by all the craziness in the world. I think it, 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 we all know that all of us are a little like, we're not operating, you know, in our best moment right now. Um, and so uh, even investors such as Union Square Ventures, who is absolutely open for business, we've signed three or four term sheets in the last month, and, and we, we are continuing to make investments. Even we, I think, um, are at times struggling to be 100% focused on our day jobs. Um, <clears throat> so if you could figure out how to wait until this moment passes and we get to a slightly more normal environment. And I don't think we're going to get quickly back to where we were two or three months ago. Um, I think that might be beneficial.
1: Okay. What should people do? Say you Mm -hmm. can, afford to wait for a bit but you know you're gonna have to raise you don't want to sit on your hands the same networking opportunities and getting to know investors that that you might have been expecting to do leading up to the second half aren't there the way they used to be how do you network how do you get yourself keep yourself on the radar and put yourself in position to be able to do that raise later when you're going to need it
0: well i think i think that um Fundraising is always an exercise of trying to find the investor, whether it's a seed investor, an angel investor, a venture capital firm, a growth investor who wants to invest in the kind of business that you're building. So it's, it's it's always critical to try to figure out who those people are and you can do that work now. So even if you, are going to put off raising money till June. Let's just say that's what you're going to do. You can absolutely use this time period now going out and trying to identify who are the investors out there that like to invest in companies at your stage, in industry you're in, that have an interest in the particular kinds of uh, products you're building or problems you're solving and you gotta do that anyway to be effective. If, if you already have investors in your company, if you have angels or you have seed investors or you have venture capitalists, they can help you do that. That's one of the big things that investors provide is they're like, these are the people you should be talking to. Because we, you know, we're in the business, we know who invests in what. But if you're trying to figure it out on your own, then you gotta do your homework. And it requires doing a lot of research and networking and asking other people, lawyers, friends, other entrepreneurs, And now's a great time to be doing that legwork.
1: Do you yet have a sense of how your assumptions about the world, um, the business world are are gonna shift? I mean, there there are some obvious things, travel, hospitality, um, restaurants that that are very clearly impacted and and at least will have some trailing impact for months and months, if, if not years. But even beyond that, Um, Are there things that either you're not investing in at all for the foreseeable future or, you know, you're investing in, but only if it's software that solves a specific kind of problem? Do you have a sense yet of how your assumptions about the world have shifted and how that influences the way that you invest?
0: Well, we have a very specific set of things we want to invest in at USB. We tend to invest almost exclusively in services that are delivered in software to customers. Um, so that if you start with that as the universe of things we invest in, um, we are somewhat uh, immune to some of the most dramatic changes that have happened. Um, but within that, we like uh, the areas that we've been most interested in over the past decade are financial services, healthcare services, and education services, and also crypto. Um, And in those markets, um, there are plenty of companies that deliver their services via software. Um, We have a bunch of them in our portfolio. We continue to be interested in them. So I don't think our thesis is gonna change very much, but we are asking ourselves some questions right now, which I think are interesting. And that is which behaviors have we adopted in this moment that we're gonna quickly get rid of when we can go back to the office? And which behaviors have we adopted in this moment that we might not get rid of so much when we go back to the office. And you can use that same uh, framework to say, which behaviors will be adopted in terms of shopping that we're gonna, that we're gonna continue to do when we, when we can go back into a store or in terms of eating and feeding ourselves that we might stay with. Um, and if you use that framework, you can start to think about some things that maybe actually work okay. Um, This conversation we're having right now, for example, you know, uh, we could, you could argue that this conversation isn't quite as good as if we were doing it in Betaworks really awesome uh, space, but it's not actually, I think, particularly worse
1: and you know who it's he, worse for, I would argue, though, is the audience, because they would have wanted to have some shot at coming up to you and shaking your hand after and saying, hey, for and maybe that's better for you in a way. But no, hey, no, they no. Wanted to meet each other. You know, and it's harder in this format. It's this such a
0: great, this is such a great point. We were literally talking about this um, in a zoom uh, meeting. We we're having at USB about conferences. So one of the reasons that a lot of entrepreneurs like to go to conferences is so they can come up to me or one of my partners afterwards and, and, and shake my hand and say hi, right? So if we're gonna move to more things like this that work completely offline, there needs to be some mechanism for all the people who are here to have some way to shake my hand. It might be a virtual handshake, but what is that virtual handshake gonna look like? And we're not gonna do, yeah, I'm not sure we're gonna do that here today, but, but you know, you're right. And, and if that is actually a productive way, then I don't need to get on a plane or I don't need to get on a subway and, and go down to Betaworks, I can, I can do this virtually. So those are, these are the kinds of things we're asking ourselves is will we find new ways to accomplish those things that we still want to do and will it be better um, or, or maybe not as good in some ways but better in other ways. And those are the things that I think will stick.
1: Uh, Give me your take on this upheaval compared to previous upheaval. I mean, I I can't help but notice back in 1987 when we had that big market crash, you were about a year into sort of an apprenticeship uh, at, at the first uh, in, investing firm where you work, you hadn't yet invested in anything, but you, you got to see some disruption in hardware, in software, even, even before we hit 2000, 2001, and the dot-com bubble burst. Um, what's the smart way from a, an investor perspective and an entrepreneur perspective to put these big disruptive moments kind of into context and to, to work and manage through them?
0: Well, I think it, it, it really, you have to start with the product and the user and, you know, what does, what does this disruption, it can be a technology disruption or it can be a business model disruption or a market disruption. Um, what does this disruption tell us about a better product experience or better user experience than what we had before? And, How can I jump on that and and go make that happen? And, you know, this is people are going to roll their eyes and say, oh, Fred's talking about crypto again. Um, But the Satoshi White Paper was written in 2009, right after the financial crash of 2008. And, you know, I would argue that whoever Satoshi was, was it a group of people? Was it an individual? Was inspired in many ways by the fact that lots of people lost money and, and 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 had all sorts of negative things happen as a result of being reliant on the traditional banks and brokerages and the way that you know money had always been handled and basically invented a new way of doing money. Um, and you can say that crypto is great, or you can say crypto is ridiculous, and the answer is probably somewhere in between. But um, but that innovative idea, I think, was really born of the 2008 financial crisis. And so there are definitely going to be ideas like that that are born out of this crisis. And already, you know, I think telehealth and online learning are two obvious places. We have big portfolios in both of those sectors. And you can just see that that there is a real um, need for uh, those kinds of things, um, just given you know the situation we're in. But more broadly, I think people are saying, hey, you know, it's great that I can just text my doctor and you know hop on the phone, and I don't need to like go see them in person, and I can get what I need, and I don't have to go to a hospital and risk getting you know infected or something. And I think those I think those behavior changes are going to be permanent. Like people are going to increasingly rely on getting their healthcare services more conveniently, more quickly, and not having to you know, do it the old fashioned way.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Now, speaking of crypto, s- since you mentioned it, there are actually a few questions about that. And I'm not gonna ask any of those. I'm gonna ask my own just to open this up. Um, you mentioned that you have been an investor there. If you had told most people who are into crypto five years ago that we would be in the situation that we're in now with markets crashing, economies sort of unstable, people not wanting to touch the same bills that somebody else, another stranger has touched. They would have said that this would be your breakout moment for cryptocurrencies, particularly Bitcoin. You know, you look at a chart of Bitcoin, not necessarily the case. So um, not to say anything specifically about Bitcoin because Bitcoin and crypto not exactly the same thing, but is this situation and either the progress that we're seeing in crypto or the, the lack of relative traction, telling us anything about how applicable that technology is going to be in the future to the sorts of problems people might've thought it would be applicable to five years ago?
0: Well, I, I think the answer to that is yes, but I don't think it's immediate. And the reason I don't think it's immediate is that there are some things about crypto that are still way too hard for the average person. Um, it's too hard to buy it. It's too hard to sell it. It's too hard to custody it. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other issues around people still. There's still hacks and people still lose their crypto and people lose their password and they can't access their crypto and a whole bunch of things about crypto that we, the industry has not solved. You know, it's and and again and when I say the industry, I include myself in this, right? Because I've been investing in it for a long time. We have not done a good enough job as a sector to deliver consumer experiences that could compete with the experiences that the big banks and brokerage firms deliver today. And until we do, crypto is gonna stay in its little, you know, kind of niche um, sector where it is today. Um, And I have a lot of confidence that we will solve those problems, investing in a lot of things that I think could be vectors for solving those problems. But um, honestly, where we sit today, you know, my mom isn't going to go buy Bitcoin, you know, and and I have a really good friend. I'm not going to mention her name that I play golf with. Um, And, you know, she's in her early seventies, I think. Uh, I've never asked her her age, um, nor would I. Um, But, you know, maybe six months ago, she said to me, you know, should I buy Bitcoin? I told her to buy Bitcoin. And two weeks ago, you know, someone tried to scam her, you know, like a phishing scam and tried to steal her crypto. Now, thank God they weren't successful. But like, you know, she was not the most technologically sophisticated person. And, you know, she was freaked out by it. And it just reminds me like that this whole sector is still a little too scammy and, and scary and, and not for the faint of heart. And so it's not mainstream yet,
1: it just isn't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Fred, I've been reporting on the tech business for the better part of around 20 years. And uh, I, I can't help but notice that people often say that in these difficult periods, some of the most important work gets done. I think about the the iPod development happening in the wake of the dot-com bust and Apple being in a really tough position. We can talk about uh, the various companies and technologies that rose after the financial crisis. You just sort of mentioned uh, the crypto situation um, and Bitcoin coming out of that. Um, What's your best word for entrepreneurs and how they can put themselves in the best um, mental position to be one of those stories of rising out of this period, whether it has to do with how they handle finances, how they think about problems, um, how either they ditch old ideas or how they stay focused. Uh, And then also for investors who might be tempted to sit on their hands during this period, what should their posture be when it comes to new ideas that might end up being that story of something huge that arises out of a crisis Uh, when people were feeling a little short on hope?
0: So um, I think there's two questions, entrepreneurs and investors. um, uh, I had the great fortune of being a partner with uh, a guy named Jerry Colonna, who's now pretty well known as a CEO coach um, in the 90s at a venture firm that he and I started called Flatiron Partners. And Jerry said to me that when the market falls apart, the only entrepreneurs who are gonna be left are the ones who are doing it because of passion and not money. And this was, he said this to me in like 1999 when everybody was jumping in and everybody was trying to make a buck. And his point was like, when everyone's trying to make a buck, the reasons that they're doing it are not that pure. Hmm. But when no one can make a buck and someone's still starting a company, it's because they're passionate about the problem. And I do think that in moments of, of hardship, um, most people will run to get that safe job, you know, at Google or Facebook or Apple or Amazon, you know, and ride it out. The few people who don't, who are like, I'm going to build, you know, you know, you think about like what was built, you know, in, in right after the financial crash, you know, the blogging platforms like TypePad and WordPress and Blogger, you know, like that kind of came out of that era and those people were doing it for passion. They weren't doing it for money. Um, And, and the same thing's true, you know, with a bunch of the things that were built in the 2008, 2009 timeframe. So, so there is um, a filter that happens with entrepreneurs in difficult times that I think um, leads to people working in for a more, like personal passion. And that I think can be very good from an investor perspective. What I would say is, um, that I I have felt very strongly for many, many years that when the markets are very frothy, we should try to invest at the slower end of our normal investment pace, but we should still be investing. Because we never know when there's going to be a market top and that when things become super bad, we should invest at the higher end of our investment pace. So let's say our investment pace is Eight to 12 deals, new deals a year, or, you know, 50 to 75 million of capital, whatever, whatever the number is right, we should, we should turn to the lower end of that range when when times are super good and we should tend to the higher end of that range when times are super bad it's not just about valuation sure valuation will be better when times are bad it's more about um the market clears out you know just easier there's less noise it's easier to see the good things and so how
1: does that fit in with what you said earlier about um right now a lot of investors being distracted Um, And so now might not be the best time to approach. Does that mean that when it is time to approach, whether that's a couple weeks or a couple months from now, uh, a lot of good investors are going to be ready to go gangbusters perhaps and really invest at a rapid pace. So it'll be from a standing start, let's go.
0: Well, so we have to leave aside the piece of the market, which is still people investing their own money. So the angel side of the market is a little different. But with respect to venture capitalists, we raise money every two to three years, um, and we're obligated to put that money to work. It's our job to put that money to work, right? We can't just sit on our hands and not put our money to work. Our limited partners don't want us to do that. So the venture capital market is open for business. Um, I think venture capitalists are a little distracted right now. They've got a lot of portfolio companies that, that are gonna need you know, inside rounds of financing and other things that will cause them. But I think that's, that, that's gonna ease up at some point. Like you know, the triage will happen and the companies will either make it or they won't make it. And it is our job to be investing in, in new projects. And I think we will continue to invest in new projects. There's a lot of capital out there that's been raised over the past three or four years that has still not been invested and it will get invested. So I do think that entrepreneurs should be optimists. And I, I wrote at the end of a blog post yesterday, the day before, if you think the door is shut, you might be wrong. Knock on the door, you might be surprised, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanna be positive. I want to encourage entrepreneurs to, to, to not you know, be defeatist. They, they, they can raise money if they have good projects. And uh, they will raise money if they have good projects. And so I, I, I'm, and I'm confident that the market is still there.
1: Well, we're, we're gonna move into a uh, real Q&A time now. So folks, there's that uh, chat button at the bottom middle of your screen. Feel free to use that. I've got a number of questions that were submitted ahead of time. So I'll get started with some more of those. And uh, Fred, there's, there's a lot of questions. So, if you can give shorter answers and still answer the question, feel free. We'll we'll fit in more um, okay. if you I want to pat it out I'm and take fewer questions. Then
0: i to try <laughs> to be more short-winded.
1: All right. Um, Melissa Herman asks: Any advice for emerging fund managers who are currently raising a fund?
0: Very difficult time for a new manager to raise a fund right now, and um, I think if you stick with it, um, things will will get better but you know there were people new managers who've never raised a fund before raising a fund in three to six months uh up until very recently when my partner brad and i started union square ventures in 2003 we started in the summer of 2003 we didn't have our first closing until november of 2004 we didn't have our final closing until february 2005 it took us almost two years and we were raising at the tail end of the downturn coming out of the internet um, blow up in 2000, 2001. So if you can take that amount of time out of your career, uh, which Brad and I were fortunate to be able to do, then you can get it done. But it's not gonna happen in three to six months like it was happening.
1: I'm gonna try to put a couple questions together here. Mark, either Karen or Caron asks, do you have any good examples of successful startups that launched with all key members scattered geographically and no central office and are there best practices? We've also got John in here on the live chat asking, uh, what are your thoughts about when we will come out of social distancing? But putting those two things together, hey, if you don't know when we're gonna come out of social distancing and you're trying to build a company, are there any best practices that that you've observed and people scattered all over the place still able to get things done.
0: So uh, the first question, I love to talk about a company called Indeed.com that we made an investment in er, in the early days of flat, of, of Unisquare Ventures in 2005, I think. Uh, the two founders were not in the same city, so Paul was in in I think Stanford, Connecticut, and Ronnie was in Austin, Texas, and they built that company. Um, from day one, you know, with the two founders being not in the same place. Now, they, they were very good at being aligned and making decisions together. Um, but we, we have backed a number of companies like that over the years. And I don't think it's so much a question of can you do it? Because uh, I think that the tools exist today to be able to do that. Um, I think it is can you create an organization and a culture that will be a good organization, a good culture to be in. That's where all the work uh, happens. And, um, and, but there's absolutely can be done. We've seen many companies do it. Def, Def Go has done it. WordPress has done it. Um, uh, we're not an investor in WordPress, but just another example of a company that's done it. So I, I do think it's, it's very doable. And I think this moment we're in probably tells us even more so that it's doable. Um, as, as many companies that it could have never imagined a remote culture are actually making it work pretty well. Mm. Uh, The second part of the question was what?
1: Second part was about uh, New York and thoughts about when this area will come out of social distancing. Um, Maybe that's asking you to play epidemiologist a little bit, but if you have a sense of even how companies are planning to uh, return to work with social distancing in place, what sort of practices, what sort of limitations uh, should we expect? Will people be gathering in small groups? Will, will companies, risk managers allow that, do you think?
0: I think that companies that are very knowledge worker heavy, tech companies, financial service companies, accounting firms, law firms, will be very hesitant to go back to the office. And I don't think that they feel an urgency to do that, that... Um, uh, so I think, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if many tech companies in New York don't go back to the office until the fall or maybe even towards the end of the year. I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised because what a lot of our portfolio companies have found is that they're, they're not losing a lot. They're losing something for sure, but they're not losing a lot right now. Um, and, and asking people to do something that makes them nervous, like going to the office versus continuing to operate remotely. I I think we'll see a lot of tech companies, banks, brokerage, so on and so forth. But there are whole industries that can't operate that way. The construction industry can't operate that way. Obviously the food and hospitality industry can't operate that way. You know, anybody who's doing you know on-site work, plumbers, electricians, whatever. And so I think those industries will in many ways show us the way back because they have to figure out a way to get back in business. Whereas tech and Wall Street doesn't. Um, And so I think tech and Wall Street will follow the example that other industries will set.
1: Uh, Chase Emanuel asks, do you think the COVID crisis is going to force companies and or investors to think differently about secondary markets and liquidity?
0: Um, I'm not sure why this would be a specific catalyst For that to happen, Uh, I do think that the industry, the venture industry, the startup industry has been, I think, working on that a lot more over the years. Um, You know, we have a portfolio company called Carta, which many people know for uh, helping them manage their cap tables. They are working on solutions in that area, and there are other companies that are working solutions in that area. So I think we are on a a march, a very clear march to a world where there's a lot more secondary liquidity available to founders and, and employees of, of tech companies. Um, but I don't know that this, this crisis in, in particular is gonna be a catalyst for that.
1: So as a follow up uh, from Ben Chiriboga here in the live chat, how do you think the VC industry is gonna be changed by this time?
0: I think we're figuring out how to make investments without ever meeting somebody in person. Like this was something we would have never, ever, ever done. And I, you know, I have a couple of good friends in the venture industry who I've, that, that don't work at USB that I've invested with many, many times over the years. And we've been texting each other, are we going to do it? And I'm like, yeah, we're going to do it. And we are doing it. And we've done it now a couple of times. And, and, um, you just have to find other ways to get, you know, I mean, there is something about being in the same room with somebody and being looked them in the eye and just get comfortable with them that, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to do in other ways. Um, I think being able to reference people and get, you know, people's, uh, opinions of them and, and really lean on that more and spend more time with people, even in a video kind of situation. Um, will be what we'll ultimately do more of. Um, say, say
1: more about that because I wonder if there are tools like social media platforms or like LinkedIn that are particularly important to you when you're trying to get enough confidence, enough data, kind of triangulate around who this person really is. Does it have to be uh, based on information from from somebody who's already really close to you that you trust that knows that person? Or are there enough tools out there that you can get the data you need otherwise?
0: Well, I think there are. I mean, I think it's a, it's a little lazy, in a way, of us in the venture industry to, to think and rely on the fact, oh, we, we have a good nose. We can we just can tell, right? And you know, sitting in a room with somebody, and I'm getting a good vibe, and you know what? I'm going to be comfortable backing this person. Um, you know, and then, but honestly, it's, it's what the industry has really relied on since I got in, in, into the industry in the mid eighties. And you know what I have really encouraged people at, at, at USB to do is to do much more reference checking and tools like LinkedIn are so valuable. It's like, Oh, this person was at this company, that person was this company. And it's not that hard to get a back channel reference on somebody. Um, if you, if you know the person, they're willing to talk to you, it's work. But in a way, you know, that probably actually tells you more about the person than some sixth sense that you might have sitting in a room with them. Right. So I I think it's going to be good. Actually, I think it's going to make it possible for people who otherwise might not have been able to access the venture capital market because they don't they're not part of the old boys network or something, right? And we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone there. We're going to have to be willing to back people in more analytical ways and in less social ways. And I think that'd be good.
1: Oh, um, Speaking of grace, Kim asks on the chat, some startups are going into survival mode given the COVID pandemic and laying off or furloughing employees. Do you expect a higher percentage of startups to fold in the coming months? What advice do you have? for startups that are looking to hunker down and survive?
0: I think failure rate is absolutely going to go up. But I also think that the government has thrown a lot of money at um, trying to help companies keep people on their payroll for the next two or three months to see if we can come out on the other side of this, Um, which I think is going to give a number of companies a shot at, at doing that. Um, there will so there will be companies that fold. There will also be, and there already are, many companies that have had to lighten up on their headcount, um, and that's just for certain. However, I I do think that the moves that the government has made to try to mitigate that will have a meaningful effect if if the business sector can start to come back by the June timeframe, which is around when, you know, people are gonna to have to take a second look at their cost structures um, and such, given how these relief programs are structured. So I think there's some chance that all of this, we, let's just call them bailouts. I know nobody likes to call mm-hmm. them bailouts. Let's just call them bailouts. Um, that, that might be good policy, right? Like bailing out GM in the financial crisis of 2008 You know, a lot of people said that was bad policy. I'm not sure how that was bad policy. The government got back all its money on the loans they made to GM and all those auto workers kept their jobs. So I'm not one who's against government bailouts. I think there's a lot of abuse that can happen and the wrong people get bailed out. I get all that. And why should rich equity holders get bailed out when employees are going to lose their jobs? I I get all the, and, and, and I don't disagree with those arguments, but I do think that it may have been good policy for the government to inject a lot of capital into the system to allow companies to not have to just go knee jerk and and get rid of tons of people and try to hang on to their teams for as long as possible.
1: Okay, I got a a double header for you. One is an area that you didn't mention as one that you're interested in as investing, uh, as an investor specifically. Another is an area that you are. um, First, this is from Radisha or Radisha, Bob, not sure, but hopefully one of those uh, questions, one of those pronunciations was correct. Uh, She says, I consult and invest in digital health startups. What's your thesis around healthcare at Union Square Ventures? How has this thesis changed since COVID-19? And then I've got an ed tech one after that.
0: So we do not invest in, um, you know, the... the the more sort of scientific parts of healthcare in terms of new therapeutics and and things like that. What we have invested in and continue to invest in is to try around entrepreneurs who are trying to reinvent the way healthcare services are getting delivered um, and trying to use more software and more digital technologies to do that. That's where we have invested. Um, Our thesis has been that you can lower the cost of provisioning healthcare increase the access, increase the uptake of healthcare services by doing that. Um, We have seen that to be true already, pre-COVID, and I think COVID is a huge momentum boost to that idea, whether it's telehealth, or whether it's other kinds of ways of provisioning services so that people can get access to the healthcare that they need more conveniently, more quickly, and more inexpensively. Um, And so yeah, I I do think that that it's going to be an accelerant.
1: Now let me ask, uh, Carly Ann Fergus follows follows up, what is your take on the evolution of the ed tech space in the post-COVID world? And what this triggers in my mind is the idea that colleges and universities have tried really hard to comply um, with regulations around access there are going to be any number of students who for various reasons pre-existing conditions you know they might be immunocompromised they're not going to feel comfortable coming into a big lecture hall perhaps even in the fall uh based on where we are with a vaccine is there going to be increased pressure on institutions that might not have invested a lot in uh edtech uh, you know video conferencing technology the ability for students to attend remotely that are really going to be under pressure to do that?
0: The answer to that is yes. Um, I mean, absolutely. You know, I do a lot of work with the New York City public school system um, and um, spent a lot of time in the schools, particularly in the outer boroughs. And um, those, the people who run those schools and the teachers in those schools and even the students in those schools. We're not really that excited about the idea of trying to teach and learn online. I don't think that the New York City school system would have adopted online learning um, particularly quickly. Um, And all of a sudden, that's all they're doing. Right now, that's all the New York City public school system is doing. And I'm not saying it's doing it well. (laughs) I'm certain that it isn't going very well because they don't know how to do it but at least they have no other choice, right? They figured out how to get 300,000 families that didn't have computers at home and didn't have internet at home to get computers and internet at home so that they could participate, which is incredible philanthropy, by the way, you know, that made that happen. Um, and, you know, and, 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 but, but they're doing it. And so it's my great hope that when they go back into the buildings, they will have learned some new tricks and that they'll be better off because of it. So yes, no doubt that this is um, going to be a real accelerant there too. And it's just, it's just the barriers, the resistance in both the healthcare system and in the education system to doing things in new ways, leveraging digital technologies is extremely high, extremely high. And in a moment, those barriers all came down. And I'm sure a lot of people think they came down temporarily and they can't wait to going back to doing things the way that they, they did them before. And in many cases, they will go back to doing them the way that those kids will go back in the school buildings. No doubt that that's going to happen. But I think the resistance and that I'm never going to do it that way are gone. My doctor, I, I had to have a doctor's appointment. We did it over video. I've never seen my doctor over video before. And I said to him, how's it going? He said, it's going great. He said, unless I need to like touch her, you know, feel something like I can treat a lot of my patients this way. So he probably
1: wouldn't have done it either, but now he's doing it. Great. Uh, So thanks again to Carly Ann and Rashida for that question. Sorry, it was transcribed with the, uh, with the letters mixed around a little bit. Thanks Rashida for that question. We got time, I think for a couple of more. Um, so I'm going to kind of go into, to wrapping up mode tone wise, uh, Patrick, uh, Lepinas perhaps uh, asks, what books have been most responsible for shaping the way you see business and your place within the ecosystem?
0: I don't know about my place within the ecosystem um, because I don't yet think of it that way. Um, But, you know, the very dry academic book Written by an economist named Carlotta Perez, called "Technologic Revolutions of Financial Capital," that my partner Brad and I read in 2003, just as we were starting Unisquare Ventures, that has been the most impactful book I've ever read about technology. Um, and it's not is it it's not like you're gonna like a bunch of people are gonna go get this book now and read it, and they're gonna be like, "Why did Fred love that book so much?" <laughs> um, it just sets the table for me in terms of how I think about new markets, new technologies, the gestation period that has to exist, and then ultimately the adoption phase and how these things kind of flow. And it's really well done, and I really liked it. And I'd say it's the most impactful book I've ever read on, on business.
1: And also, as a VC, um, let's see, uh, Actually, let me let me get to this one because uh, we already asked a question from Ben. Sam asks, "I, I want to return to China and work on my startup. I want to build a new platform for knowledge products. Due to the current political situation, do you and your industry colleagues still consider investing in companies based in China, especially at seed stage? And maybe you can broaden that out to how you look at investment um, outside of the U.S., outside of New York." Uh, Uh, globally at this stage?
0: We have not invested in companies that are Chinese companies, Um, but we have invested in quite a few companies that have one foot in China and one foot in the U S where one founder, maybe the technical founders in China and a lot of the engineering is in China and one founder, maybe the more business focused founders in the U S that has been the model that we've been more comfortable with because we don't have an office in China. Um, but there are a lot of things that are exciting about what's going on in China. Um, and other than the US, I think China is the most entrepreneurial economy. I don't mean to, I don't mean to insult anybody out there you know, who, who lives in Europe or other parts of Asia or other parts of the world, but um, it just, in, the, in raw numbers, there's more startups in China than maybe even the US now. So it's, it's an extremely fertile place for, for startups.
1: So given what you said earlier about vetting entrepreneurs digitally uh, versus in person, is that gonna change at all? Or does it have to do even with the strength of digital networks, trusted networks in the US and perhaps a few other uh, countries versus in China? In other words, once you get better at this digital vetting, is that gonna open up your willingness to invest in places where you don't have offices or is there still some degree of proximity that's gonna be important?
0: That's a great question. And I honestly hadn't even thought about that, but it's obviously true, right? Uh, If everything that I said on this conversation up till now is right, then it it means that that being able to be less location uh, sensitive in our investing is possible and something that we should embrace. and uh, so, yeah, I think, I think it will make it easier for us to do that. I still think that there are language and cultural differences um, that you cannot, um, at least today, overcome so easily. Um, when somebody is pitching me and their English is not great and my ability to speak in their native tongue doesn't exist, which is almost always the case, um, I find it harder. And um, I wish that weren't true, but it it is true. And uh, so there are still some uh, barriers, I think, but, uh, but you're right. It should make it way easier for us to invest anywhere in the world.
1: You know, Duolingo is working on that.
0: I know that.
1: (laughs) I want to keep us honest on time. Fred, I want to be respectful of your time. Of course. I know Ben said, that he was going to uh, drop in and and have some closing words. But before that, Fred, uh, is is there anything that you wanted to say to wrap up?
0: Well, I just think to the extent that there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there listening, um, it's a tough time to be an entrepreneur. And I feel for all of them, um, because not only are they trying to keep their businesses together, they have family situations and everything. So I I I I I feel for all of you, and and I I do think we will get through this. Um, I do think that there's a a uh, there there's an end to this, and we'll we'll get through it. But it it's not going to be easy, and you know we're going to have to make a lot of tough decisions, and you know it's 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 hard. But hang in there.
2: Um, well, thank you guys both. Fred, honestly, that was really one of the best AMAs that we've done. I think you did a really nice job, especially at the beginning, giving elaborate answers. The long-windedness that you said, I think, was actually really useful because you've got an insightful mind, and it was, it was a treat for us all to get a chance to kind of walk through some of the anecdotes you shared. John, your questions were excellent, um, and you did, a, I think, a really good job uh, poking Fred on some of the things that he uh, talked about to tease some of the things out. For me, personally, I mean, I, I really... A lot of those things resonate with me. I met my wife is Italian and um, she made me promise that I'd have to learn uh, Italian in order to marry her and I learned through Duolingo about eight or nine years ago um, and I've always been a big stand for it and I'm personally excited to see that taking off right now. Um, and the New York City Schools comment, I'm the son of two teachers and I've been waiting for the future for the last, for my, the 40 years I've been alive and uh, I am really curious about where things are going right now um, and many of my friends have children and are basically like what the fuck is this thing called education right now with with our kids that we're putting them through? And hopefully schools are incentivized to try to start figuring some things out. So, well, can I I say one thing on that? Please. Um,
0: The financial crisis of 2008 made us say, what the fuck is a bank? And I think that this crisis is causing a lot of parents to say, what the fuck is a school, right? Mm -hmm. I think we're realizing that a school is daycare for sure that we never maybe honestly wanted to admit to ourselves because we have this higher view of education right and even the people in the education business don't want to call it that but but at least some piece of that is just daycare and we know that some Mm -hmm. of it is socialization and some of it is education and I think it's the education piece we fall down the most with actually in 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 the traditional schooling system and a lot of parents that I know my kids are all grown but a lot of parents I know are like my kid can't, my kid can't do sixth grade math. And I'm like, why didn't you figure that out until now? And they're like, well, because like, it's not hidden from me anymore. So I do think this is the moment where we're like, what the fuck is going on at school? And I don't know what we're gonna do about that. Um, But- And that is the huge- At least we're armed with that question.
2: Yes, and it's it's a huge societal question for us because it's about what the next generations are gonna be um, and, I'm, I appreciate the fact that it's something that you're thinking about because it means that other people are going to be thinking about it as well. So um, I don't wanna, we don't want to take up any more of your time, Fred, but thank you so much.